0: If you're a Christian, you know what I mean when I say that there are times in our lives where uh, we are just sort of going about life and, and maybe we're weighed down or distracted and we begin to sing to the Lord and he just awakens our souls. He just awakens us to his glory, to his goodness, to his great story and our place in it. And so, you know, we really do take for granted the fact we get to come together every week like this and just sing praises to God, to sing to Him vertically, but to sing to Him with one another and to hear one another sing praises to the Lord. So what a joy, what a privilege it is to be together again and to sing His praises, to pray to Him corporately, uh, together as a church and to look into the depths of his word. So for today, we're going to look at Exodus 25. So if you'll go there, Exodus 25, verses 23 to 40. That's our passage for today. Exodus 25, 23 to 40. We are looking at the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus. So this is A precursor to the temple, so uh, there will ultimately be down the road, the time of Solomon, the temple will be built. This is a a stationary building, a massive building, an incredibly ornate building that is going to be in Jerusalem where God's people will worship. Uh, But for now, in the history of Israel, we have this tabernacle, and uh, at this point, we're just getting the instructions for how to build it. This is God's dwelling place, the place where Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the universe, the God who is over all, this is the place where this God will dwell, where, where He will make His presence known to His people. So we are talking about a number of big themes as we come to this portion, and I think it's always important to get to keep the big themes in view. <clears throat> we don't want to be superficial and Uh, and just focus on big themes. We want to get down and look at the details, uh, but we shouldn't lose sight of the forest for the trees, to use that cliche, and we want to keep the forest in view. And so we have some really big themes that are coming at us here at the end of the book of Exodus, themes like holiness and worship and God's presence. I don't think any of us would argue that those are not essential, central themes of the Christian faith, holiness and worship and God's presence. Well, they're just exploding out of this passage, this extended passage that really does take us to the end of the book of Exodus. These are the great themes that dominate this portion of God's Word. And so, I hope that if uh, this portion of Scripture has seemed obscure or maybe a little boring to you in the past, that, that at the very least, those themes will become uh, clearer to you, that they will take on more power for you, more clarity, as you think about the history of redemption, God's great story, and how it goes back, as we think about these themes, to the tabernacle here in Exodus. Exodus. Another thing that this does for us as we look at the tabernacle, and I've said this before, is it gives us a Godward orientation. We have to step outside of ourselves. We have to step outside of our own issues and, and thinking and problems and feelings and all of that, which, by the way, they don't ever go away. You've experienced, we've all experienced that, that we think, if I could just get over this hump, if I can just get through this thing, If I can just get, no, it doesn't work that way because there's just another set, just another set of issues, another set of problems, another set of difficulties. We we live in a fallen world. And in this fallen world, our bodies are deteriorating day by day by day. The world around us is broken. We sin, and those whom we love sin against us. Moth and rust and thieves are reality. Sometimes we think that if we can just get past this moment, things will just be easy, smooth sailing. But all of this is really just a, a kind of me centered orientation an orientation to self, an orientation to fulfillment. And what a passage like this, a section like this in Scripture does is it really just grabs us by the cheeks like a child, grabs us by the cheeks and moves our head, it moves our eyes to something that entirely transcends all these little things that occupy our attention. It causes us to worry where we focus all of our time and energy and thinking, and it shoots us vertically into the presence of the Lord. It reminds us that all of reality is for His glory. And our lives and even our problems are there where He can be glorified. Last week, we looked at the Ark of the Covenant the central object and place within the tabernacle. So it is both an object and a place. And as we discussed, the ark functions as two things. And these were our two points from last week. The ark functions as two things. First, it is a container. It is meant to hold something. Specifically, it is meant to hold the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, the testimony of of the covenant that God has made with his people. And so our first point last week as we looked at the Ark of the Covenant was that it is the chest of truth. It is, it is a box. At the end of the day, it, it's just a box. But it is more than a box because of what it holds. First, because of what it holds, it holds the tablets of the 10 Commandments. This is the chest of truth. And as Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4 tells us, it would ultimately come to hold three things. So we read there that a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. This is what the ark of the covenant would hold, this box, this chest, this ark. And it's interesting that the ark would hold those three things. And I think it tells us something essential about the nature of the ark, but also about the purpose of the Ten Commandments being in there. So let me say this. We know that the Ten Commandments were there because they reminded the people of their obligation. Right? These were the commands from Yahweh. These were the stipulations, the requirements. This was what God wanted from his people. What He commanded of his people. These were the terms of the covenant. And so the Ten Commandments remind the people of their obligation. But listen to this. When you take the fact that the Ten Commandments are placed alongside the staff used in Egypt, and when you take alongside of that the urn holding the manna, it tells us what's really at play here. And it is that God is putting before his people reminders of his great work. And that just tells us that God calls us to do all kinds of things, right? There are all kinds of commands in Scripture, but all of those commands center on and are built upon what God has done for us in Christ. God's work, and then out of God's work, out of God's redemptive work, out of God's grace to us in Christ, we then go and work. We carry out the works that God has prepared Beforehand, before the foundation of the world. So at the end of the day, it is about being reminded of God's work. And let me just say to all of us, that is one of the primary reasons we read the Bible, I I always like to plug reasons why we read the Bible because sometimes uh, you may just be tempted to think of it as as just sort of a a, a discipline that you need to do. I I need to do this. I've become a Christian. I need to read the Bible. And, And that's all it is. And there's never any depth to it. There's never any real reason behind it. And one of the reasons that we read the Bible is so that we can constantly be confronted with what God has done, with God's work on our behalf. It is there that we experience a love for God. If you feel like your love for God has grown cold, you will rediscover your love for God as you see the work of God on your behalf. As you consider That this great story of redemption, all the wondrous things that God has done and how he has graciously and mercifully, apart from anything that you have done, folded you into that story. We need these reminders of God's work and the ark functioned as a container that held these reminders. Second, it is a place of atonement. So it's a container, but it is also a place of atonement. This wooden chest or box overlaid with pure gold comes with a lid also made of pure gold a lid with these angelic beings, these cherubim. And by the way, some people ask me, hold on, are you pronouncing that that way? Well, that's the way that it is pronounced in Hebrew, the cherubim, so we obviously pronounce this cherubim, so don't get hung up on that. Continue to pronounce it as cherubim if you wish. What I tell people is I try with standard names like Joseph or David or just to say it normal, but I try to pronounce these things as they are pronounced in the language in which it was written. And so that's what they are. They're these angelic beings there on the end of, on each end of the mercy seat. And as we talked about last week, it is a picture of Eden it reminds the people, uh, the, the high, well, all of the people know about this, but of course the high priest who will enter into the holiest place, the holy of holies, it reminds the people that they are in this worship as it were going back to Eden. They're going back to before the fall. As we remember, the cherubim, the cherubim put at the entrance to the garden and there through the entrance to the garden was the tree of life and God's presence, which Adam and Eve had Gone with their sin. So it is a picture of Eden, a picture of heaven. Uh, Eden is itself a picture of heaven where these angelic beings surround God's throne and worship Him day and night, moment by moment. The worshipers of Israel are going back into Eden, but they are also going up into heaven as they commune with the living God. So it's a picture of Eden, a picture of heaven but also a place of forgiveness. This is where the high priest, once a year, would sprinkle the blood, and the Lord would see the blood and pass over the sins of his people. This is the place of mercy. So it's the chest of truth, but it is also the place of mercy. And as I said last week, uh, what incredible pictures of the gospel we get in the Passover and here with the mercy seat and the day of atonement. God sees the blood and he passes over the sins of his people. There will only be one kind of person in heaven. Only one kind of person. And here it is. A person whose life has been covered in the blood of the lamb. And God has on account of the blood, on no other account, but on account of the blood of the sacrificial lamb, the substitute who took the penalty of death that we deserve, only the person who has that blood upon them and God passes over their sins, only that person will be in heaven. So let me just say to you kids this morning, as you think about Christianity, you're, you're growing up in a Christian home, uh, you're getting a lot of rules and that's a good thing. You're being taught authority, and that's a good thing. And you're being shown various practices, and those are good things. But let me say this to you. Do not merely grow up to be a religious person. Grow up to be a person who trusts in the blood of the Lamb. Because apart from that blood covering you before the face of God, you will die in your sins and spend eternity in hell. There's only one way to be forgiven. There's only one place to find mercy, and that is through the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is the chest of truth and the place of mercy. Today we come to two more objects in the tabernacle, two more pieces of furniture in God's portable house, and that's really what we're looking at. This is uh, pictured as God's house, Uh, God doesn't need uh, anything particularly special. Uh, God is his own glory. He he doesn't need the human beings to create him some massive mountain-like structure, like a ziggurat or some sort of pyramid. Uh, Just a simple house will do. This is displayed as God's portable house. And we've looked at one piece of furniture, and today we'll look at two more. The table for the bread of the presence and the golden lampstand. Both of these items are in the next section of the tabernacle, moving out from the Ark of the Covenant. And so if you guys could put up a slide of the tabernacle. Tried to keep these up here so that you can see them. I have them available to look at here. But this is the tabernacle. And the court, and you'll see within the tent of meeting, as it's called, or the tabernacle proper, you'll see uh, there are two sections there. One of those sections is the most holy place, or the holy of holies, as you may have learned it. This is where the ark is found. That's the section in the back, and you can see, it's tiny there, but you can see the ark in there with the poles. And then there is the holy place, so both places holy, one place holier, The holy place is where we find the table on the north side and the lampstand on the south side. So the way that this is oriented is you have the the east, the entrance is at the east, the tent of meeting is in the west, the north side is the table, the south side is the lampstand. By the way, it is interesting that you see in the early chapters of Genesis that uh, man travels east And what we have here is a reversal. Now, man goes back through the cherubim, back to the tree of life, back to the Lord's presence, back to a pre-fall state. All of this, I think, is being communicated in the tabernacle. Each of these sections, these two sections within the tent of meeting, each of these sections is delineated with a veil. So you see, uh, this, the blue veil, blue, blue and scarlet, and then you'll see the one before the Holy of Holies, which has cherubim on it. So there's, there's the cherubim on that inner veil, and then there's the cherubim on the mercy seat itself. You're not forgetting about that. You're not going to miss that. You're not going to miss all of that Edenic, Edenic imagery. Each of these sections has a veil. One separating the most holy place from the The holy place. So, the title for the sermon this morning is Between the Veils. We're going to look at the furniture that is positioned between those two veils. So, if you would stand with me as we read God's word together, we're going to read Exodus 25, verses 23 to 40. We're going to take these two pieces of furniture together. Uh, And the incense altar is going to be mentioned later. That's also in there. Uh, But that's going to be mentioned more functionally later when the priests are discussed. So this is the word of God. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length. A cubit its breadth. And a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. And then verse 31, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand." And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord. Ask for him to illuminate his word, to work in our hearts, to uh, do what only he can do inside each of us. To give us joy in him to give us adoration of his glory and to give us a firm resolve as we sang earlier to follow Jesus so let's pray father we're thankful for what you've put before us this morning our food from your word and we pray that we would eat well consciously lord that we would not just skip over this time or listen partially lord but that our minds would be attuned to you god that you would help us open open our minds but also open our hearts lord that we would be supple in your hands, as you, the potter, works the clay of our hearts. God, we praise you that you are with us this morning, and you are helping us, you are strengthening us, and you promise to do so. God, and we know that you will strengthen us up to that great day. When we will be with you, Lord, we think of the hour of our death. When we will go and be with you in our souls. And how at the coming of Jesus Christ we will be raised from the dead. Our bodies will be raised and transformed, as Paul tells the Thessalonians, into Christ's likeness. And thus we will be with the Lord. God, we look forward to that day. And we pray now that we would live in light of that day with great hope. And Lord, as we think about these big themes of holiness and worship and your presence, we pray that this would elevate our worship of you and, and our desire to serve you and just our awe of your word and, and what you have done and what you are doing in our lives. Father, we pray for our children, those among us this morning and those learning in the back, but particularly those here in, in under The preaching of your word in this room, Lord, I pray that you would use what is said this morning to show them their need for Christ and the absolute emptiness and meaninglessness of a life, no matter how fun, no matter how glamorous, just the pure emptiness of a life lived apart from Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you'd remind all of us who are Christians of that, that you would save some among us this morning who are unconverted, that you'd be merciful. God, we pray for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So the outline this morning is pretty simple. We have two objects, two pieces of furniture to focus on. So first, we'll look at the table, verses 23 to 30. And then second, we'll look at the lampstand, Verses 31 to 40, both of which are between the veils in this holy place. So let's look first at the table. And yes, I do want to read through that again. By the way, I always say this. This is the most important part of the sermon, is the reading of Scripture. So here are verses 23 to 30 again. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. And make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie, as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these... And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its phlegons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the the table before me regularly. This description sounds very similar to that of the ark. And uh, you may be thinking that as you're reading it, uh, going back to the ark. it, It starts off in the same way, and on the whole, it sounds very similar, like the ark. It is made of acacia wood and then overlaid with pure gold. It, is, it also has the same height of the ark, a cubit and a half high. So only 2.25 feet. So this thing is not very tall, but it's the same height as the ark, though it has a smaller length and breadth. Just as the ark has poles to carry it, here there are poles to carry the table. Also made of acacia wood and then overlaid with gold, and so the same thing here uh, with the table as with the ark. Just as the ark itself was made of pure gold, and the outer attachments and poles were made of gold, we see the same thing here: a molding of gold, a rim with a molding of gold around it, four rings of gold, poles overlaid with gold. So hopefully you see that that the core is made of pure gold. And then the things on the outside of it and the poles themselves just simply gold. Just gold. Just gold. But there is a distinction made here between the object itself, the core of the object, and the molding and the rings and the poles that go around it and through it. Just as the lid of the ark shared the same material with the ark, pure gold, so too do the utensils on top of the table share their material with the table itself, also pure gold. And so we read this in verse 29, and you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, you shall make them of pure gold. And we've got a picture here I want to put up for you, just to give you a better idea of what we're talking about. Now, um, what what scholars will say and commentators will say is that we, we don't know precisely how all of these things work. Not all of the details are covered. We're not told a lot about the molding and so forth, the height of the molding. And we know that the Spirit will give Basilel uh, and others the wisdom, as we'll read later, the wisdom to make these things. And that there will be, uh, that, that the final product is not something that we really are able to reconstruct. But based on what we have here, this is a, a reconstruction of what this table would have looked like. This table of pure gold and then of gold. Now you'll notice in the picture that there is bread on top of the table. And here we come to see the main function of the table. As we talked about uh, the dimensions and the the description and the, the, the height and the material and all of that of the Ark of the Covenant, what we're really after is understanding what is the function, what is the purpose of this piece of furniture. And here we come to the function of the table as a resting place for the bread. So we read that in verse 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now we get more information about this bread in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 to 9. So I want to read that to you. and This will give you a little bit more of a sense for what goes on with this bread and why this table is there. So here it is, Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9, if you want to write that down. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it, Two-tenths of an ephah shall be, shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles. And we can just keep this up while I read this. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord or to Yahweh. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before Yahweh regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So what do we have here? We have 12 Loaves, and it doesn't take long to figure out what that represents. As we have the 12 tribes of Israel, we have 12 loaves, one loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and of course, that brings all of Israel back to their origins. It brings them back to those early days in Genesis, and if you were here when we went through Genesis, you remember walking alongside of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You could call after Genesis 11, uh, really at the end of Genesis 11, you, co- you could call Genesis, uh, you could entitle Genesis the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because that's what the, the whole book is about after chapter 11. We walked alongside of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we remember Jacob having these 12 sons in fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham that he would multiply his offspring. And God begins, by the end of Genesis, he begins to build, and particularly at the beginning of Exodus, he begins to build an entire nation out of the 12 sons of Jacob. So each loaf reminding the Israelites of their origins and the loaves together reminding the Israelites that God took 12 sons and he multiplied them exponentially and created a nation for the sake of his glory and his name. And this bread, we are told there in Leviticus 24, is placed before the Lord or in his presence as a food offering. So it serves as an act of worship, as a constant reminder of the Lord's presence there in the tabernacle. And so some have have associated this with sort of feeding God, giving God his his food. And uh, one of the problems with that is in ancient pagan temples, Mesopotamian temples and other places, that this sort of food stuff was put inside of the the most holy place, the place where, for them, the idol of the God was, was there so that there could be a feeding of the God There at the idol. It's interesting here that these loaves are not placed there inside of the holiest place, inside of the veil. They're placed outside of the veil. And I think so as to remind all of Israel that none of that pagan business is at play. God doesn't need any food. He's in need of nothing. All that exists comes from his hand. God is not like the gods of the nations. But though he needs no food... He is there. And placing the bread reminds the people of this truth that God is there. So I hope you understand what I'm saying. The bread being there reminds that there is a presence, that someone is home. He hasn't gone away. As Elijah taunts the the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, maybe he's gone on a journey or he's using the bathroom or something like that. God doesn't do any of that. He's present, unwaveringly present. Though he needs no food, he is there. And each loaf of bread stacked upon one another, 12 total, reminds the people that he is there. Let me just say this, how often do we need to be reminded that God is, in fact, there? It is so easy to forget that, that God is only present, He's only there in certain situations. Or maybe when we, when we call out to Him, I, I teach a course online where, uh, within the course, uh, the students have to look at moralistic, therapeutic deism, It's the prevailing idea. A a sociologist from Duke University did a study, and it looked at how uh, American teenagers basically have that sort of deistic religion. God is distant. He's not present. He's not there. And sometimes we live like that. We don't believe that. We would not affirm that. But we live as though God is not there. Present hearing us, no matter whether we feel it or not. God's not just there when we feel that. Oh, we love those feelings. I don't want to put, I don't want to throw those feelings away. God made us as human beings who feel, and we feel deeply. And of course, we are going to feel deeply about the most significant reality of all, about the greatest love that we have, and and the one who loves us more than any other. We feel deeply But sometimes we just don't feel his presence. And that doesn't mean that he's absent. You know, no matter how the priest was feeling when he came to the tabernacle, and no matter how the Israelite who came up to to bring these sacrifices or whatever, they were reminded that no matter how they feel about life right now, God is there. You know, our prayer life shows whether or not we believe that. Do we only pray after we've had a few cups of coffee or when there's excitement in the air or do we pray when we feel numb and dry and just empty? In both of those moments, God is there always. And the bread reminded the people of this great truth. The bread is also to be consumed by the priests. Notice that from Leviticus 24, the priests eat the bread. Each Sabbath, they eat the bread and replace it with more loaves. So there is always to be bread before the Lord or in his presence. So aside from what's already been mentioned, what are we to take from this bread? What are we to make of it? We know the table is ultimately about the bread and so what are we to take from this bread, well, let me give you two words, and the first one is communion, and I've talked about this a little before. But the bread reminds the people of the covenant meal that the elders had just had with the Lord on the mountain. Remember that there are seventy elders that go up part way, not all the way to the top where Moses goes, but they go up part way with Aaron and his two sons, seventy elders and Moses. They go up part way. And there they commune with the Lord and they eat and drink. And the imagery there is being in close communion with God it is it is a covenant meal in which the people are dining with the Lord and that's the picture that we have here as the priests come in weekly on the Sabbath and they take the bread that's that's there they consume that bread and they replace it with more bread they're being reminded and all the people behind them are being reminded that we have communion with the living God let me say it this way The appearance of bread is familial and intimate. Just the bread itself reminds the people of a family meal. So that's the first word, communion. The second word is provision. Provision. The bread in God's presence becomes the sustenance for the priest's. It is taken from his presence. God is meeting their needs from his hand, from his table, from his dwelling place. So you see the bread there on the table. The priests come in, they partake of the bread, and it is as though they are taking it from the Lord who has served it. He has laid out the bread on his table, in his dining room, so to speak, within his house, and he is giving that to his people. And this, of course, points back to the manna. God cared for his people by giving them the manna. And you remember the people were grumbling. They were thirsty, and then they were hungry, back and forth, grumbling against the Lord. And even in spite of their grumbling, and we've seen this in our lives, that even in spite of our grumbling, God doesn't lash out against us. He actually helps us. He blesses us. He he, he doesn't give us what we deserve. Are we thankful for that this morning, that God doesn't give us what we deserve? He lavishes us with his grace. And we saw the Lord do that as the people grumbled about bread. And then God lavished them with bread every morning when they woke up. They had this manna, this mysterious bread on the ground. Honey flavored, wafer like bread. And they ate that bread every day. And then miraculously, wondrously, on the sixth day, God provided enough bread so that they would not have to gather on the seventh day and they could rest on the Sabbath. God provided for his people. This bread at the table points back to that bread provided for all of the people. And it tells us that God cares for the needs of his people. I've mentioned this book before, but it's it's a book by John MacArthur called Anxious for Nothing. And there was a period in my life where I was just really anxious and worrisome. Um, And I read that book and it was just like a healing balm to my soul. And one of the verses in that book that he points to is Philippians 4.19. Philippians 4.19, Paul says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, that anything that we need, God will supply. You know what that tells us is that if things are going a particular way and we're not getting something that we want, we need to understand that according to God's wisdom, it is not something that we need. And that's really hard for us because we know what we need. We got it all figured out. We know precisely what we need and when we need it, and we're willing to wait a little bit, you know, to learn patience and all that stuff. But then we want God to give it to us because that's what we need, and we know that's what we need. We've worked it out in our own minds according to our own wisdom. But that's not what God gives us. He will supply every need of ours right up until death and through death with every circumstance we face. And it reminds us of that. The manna does, as well as this bread here on the table. It also more significantly points forward to our bread from heaven. John chapter 6, verses 32 to 35, which we read earlier. Listen to what the Lord Jesus says. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So let me just pause right there. Jesus is doing a couple things there, but one of those is that he is putting the people's minds, taking the people's minds off of the bread that fills the tummy, the bread that fills the flesh, like when he was tempted and and Satan tempted him to turn a stone into bread. He's tempted to to fill the flesh after 40 days of not eating. Jesus is taking their minds off of what they need for the body. And he's putting their minds on what they need eternally for their souls. And he says this, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Just kind of like, you know, not getting it. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And listen to his promise. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Let me say to you this morning, if you're not a Christian, all the things that you think are going to sustain you and fill you and make you happy, you already know that they don't, right? You already know that. And you know that because God has given you enough experiences in life to know that having perfect health really is not everything. Having a big promotion where you got so much more money in the bank eventually, you still just need more. You just need more money because the more money you get, the more ideas you have for how to spend that money and the bigger your view of, of earthly reality becomes. It just doesn't, it doesn't please you. It doesn't satisfy you It doesn't sustain you, and you know that already. So here's the question, just from a rational standpoint, why are you still pursuing what has failed you? Why are you still chasing after what you know can never satisfy your soul? Jesus is the bread of life. He will give you joy, peace. He will give you true blessedness, true happiness in this life and in the life to come. And he will give you himself. He himself is the bread of life. So just as the manna pointed to this great need and this great sustenance, so too does the bread on that golden table point to the great need that all of Israel and all of us have. The bread sent down from heaven. Secondly, we come to the lampstand, and for that we're going to look at verses 31 to 40. So go there with me, verses 31 to 40, the lampstand. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it, And there shall be six branches going out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it. And three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms. Each with calyx and flower on one branch. And three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups "'Made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, "'and a calyx of one piece with it "'under each pair of the six branches "'going out from the lampstand. "'Their calyxes and their branches "'shall be of one piece with it, "'the whole of it a single piece of hammered work "'of pure gold. "'You shall make seven lamps for it, "'and the lamps shall be set up "'so as to give light on the space in front of it. "'Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold.' It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So here we are again with all of this pure gold. And it reminds us of the emphasis on holiness and majesty. So I said at the very beginning as we started on the tabernacle that this is a humble, lowly structure And nonetheless, the holiness of God and the majesty of God are still being conveyed. And so there's this beautiful kind of majestic lowliness in the tabernacle, which of course points, I think, to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. Although humble, this is the earthly dwelling place of the living God, of the king of the universe. This is a place that must be Be approached with reverence, not to be approached by the priests lightly or flippantly, but with an attitude of holiness and a recognition of God's holiness. So let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 6. As we think about the tabernacle and the temple, Paul draws from that imagery and he brings the implication on us about the dwelling place of God and the holiness of life that it calls us to. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Paul says this. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have From God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So let me scroll back for a moment. When the priests walk in and they see all of this gold, their minds immediately are to go to God's holiness, God's majesty, my care, my carefulness. When we think of the gospel, when we think of what Christ has done for us on the tree, when we think about the the bearing of the wrath of God, when we think about the bearing of the curse, we think about Christ's resurrection and his ascension and his session at the right hand of the majesty on high. When we think about the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church, which we read about in Acts chapter 2, We are meant to think, as that priest thought, when he walked into the holy place and the high priest once a year into the most holy place, we are meant to think with such care about how we carry out our lives, how we employ our members. And isn't it interesting that the one category of sin that Paul most associates with grieving these realities. The one category of sin that Paul most associates with smashing that lampstand and smashing the ark and treating God's gospel, God's Son, His blood, His indwelling Spirit, frivolously and flippantly, the one category of sin that Paul associates with that is sexual immorality. And Paul makes an argument here that there's something uniquely unfitting, something uniquely wrong about sexual immorality and particularly for one who is a temple of the living God. So let me just say this this morning. I I don't know where you are with that in your life. I don't know the ways in which you're struggling in your life right now, but we live in a hyper-sexualized culture. We live in a culture filled with sexual temptations everywhere we look. So I just want to commend to you today these marvelous words from the apostle, as we think about the fact that we are the temple of the living God and what God calls us to in the area of sexual purity. What a blessed thing. What a wonderful thing it would be for you to repent today in this service, to repent today of pornography. To turn away today definitively from those things which have ensnared you and weighed you down. Those fantasies going on in your mind. Maybe even adultery physically happening by someone in this room. I don't know. But here we are reminded of what a grievance it is for a spirit-indwelled temple of God to participate in sexual immorality. And this pure gold, this pure gold object is a lampstand, as we're told here, a beautiful, exquisite piece of artistry. This is incredibly ornate a uh, piece of work hammered out of pure gold. The description sounds a little complicated. So this is definitely one of those moments where you do kind of glaze over as you're reading this. It's, it's so intricate. It is so detailed. And it does sound complicated primarily because of all of the ornamentation on this lampstand and more specifically because it is being described as a tree with branches and flowers. Now, I said earlier, uh, as we were talking about the tabernacle in general, That maybe if you're a a construction worker uh, or or you're a contractor or something, you do this sort of stuff, you're a carpenter, uh, when when it comes to all these measurements and and the angles and everything else, it's not a big deal because this is the sort of thing that you encounter often. And maybe if you like to work in the garden or you do that sort of thing a lot, uh, this is also no big deal because it's just describing something that you might find in your garden. But it is described as a tree with branches and flowers. Let me go ahead and put a picture of it up. I try to say a little bit before I put the picture up because once the picture goes up, boom, that's where, that's where, our, that's where we are. Uh, so once again, uh, not a, a perfect representation. This is a, a reconstruction. But one of the interesting things that we do have is we have on the Arch of Titus in the Forum in Rome, we actually have um, a, an engraving That uh, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, uh, that where there are these soldiers carrying out a menorah, this is a menorah, carrying out the lampstand, and you get an idea for what it looked like. Now, of course, there uh, probably was some artistic freedom there and so forth, and that was the temple. That was the one found in the temple much later than we have here with the tabernacle. But based on the words that we have here and based on pieces of evidence like that, this is probably how... The lampstand looked. It has a base, a stem, cups made like almond blossoms, calyxes, flowers, branches, all of this flower and tree language. The big idea here is that it has six branches and one stem, each of which having a cup at the top. So you see that there's a cup on the stem which goes all the way to the top and then the branches probably uh, came up to the same level Three branches on each side with the cup being level, all the cups being level on the top. Into each of these cups, a lamp is placed, and we read that in verse 37. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Now, we don't know how tall this thing was, but you can imagine that it would have needed to be tall enough to cast light onto the table. If it were short like the table, it would just cast light kind of under the table. So it's gotta be tall enough, maybe several feet tall, to cast light down going north onto the table with the bread of the presence. There are utensils needed to attend to the lamps, and we read that in verse 38. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold finally verse 40 reiterates what we've seen already and we see, and see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain so that's the lampstand and now that we've got an idea of what it looked like what are we to make of this piece of furniture in the tabernacle and as we close this morning i just want to make several observations so first as i said before it was functional These pieces of furniture have symbolic meaning, but they are functional as well. It gave light, as I said, towards the table. So it lit up the bread and provided light for the priests to carry out their work. It was functional. It had a purpose, practical purpose. Second, it was tended regularly by the priests. So let me read to you from Exodus 27 verses 20 to 21, which we'll get later as we work our way through Exodus. So Exodus 27, 20 to 21. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil, that is, before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before Yahweh it shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel so just as the bread was always there so too was the light the bread was always there the light was always there why because god was always there god was never gone from the from his people he was never not present with them the bread and the light point to God's unending presence. As the bread points to Jesus, so too does the light. And we read for our call to worship this morning from John chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of Life And then John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is both the bread and the light. Isn't it wonderful when we come to the Gospel of John and we get all of these I am statements of Jesus? This is one of the the, the crown jewels of of the Bible are the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. As our our Christology, just our, our doctrine of Christ, our understanding of Christ, which has so many practical implications, just begins to explode through those I am statements. Jesus is both the bread and he is The light, he watches over us and leads us, and in him we see reality. In Christ, let me say this, in Christ is the end of deception and stumbling. And that's what we do through life without Christ. Make no mistake about it. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, You are actively being deceived. You will continue to be deceived. You are stumbling and you will continue to stumble. You will be deceived right up until your death and you will stumble your way into the grave because you are walking in darkness. Well, Jesus changes all of that. Jesus is the light of the world. When we come to Christ, deception is done away with. Stumbling is done away with. And though we live imperfectly in Christ, we nonetheless have eyes to see and a heart to love. And our path is lit up. And we've been transferred from darkness to light. It is a new day. And how wondrous to read the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 14, when he says this to us to us you are the light of the world when we see that menorah when we think about that lampstand our minds should first go to Christ as the light of the world himself but we should also consider the implication of what it means that we have been united to Christ joined to Christ that we are now light in the world how is it that people see Jesus? How is it that people see the glory of Christ through his people? As his people preach his word and share his word and live his word, people see the light of Christ through the light of his people. Third, there is this whole tree thing. This is not just a lamp. This is also a tree. It is a lit up Tree, and it could be a pointer to the tree of life. Uh, I struggle with that a little bit. It might be, but in my mind, the tree of life is between the kerubim. So, in my mind, the tree, the tree, if it's a, a picture of the tree of life, it needs to kind of go, needs to kind of go back, but be, behind the the kerubim. You got those on the on the veil, and you got them there on the mercy seat. But it could still be imagery to remind the people of the tree of life. At the very least, it reminds the people that they are growing up in the Lord and that God is with them, nourishing them, growing them. Finally, why are there seven cups? Well, there's all sorts of stuff uh, put out there about this, all kinds of ways of describing or reasons for this, but uh, I'm convinced that the seven may very well point back to the creation week And joining up with the Sabbath, you have the six cups and then a unique cup in the middle. And there could be a reference here to the rest that is found in God as the creation week comes to an end and God rests. And if that's the case here, once again, we have a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ provides for us. So let me just end on this note. The tabernacle is entirely Christological. And that doesn't mean that we have to find Christ on every little loop and at every corner. Some of that, as I've said before, is kind of silly and fanciful. But it does mean that as we take a step back and look at the tabernacle itself and all of its furniture and what goes on there, we are meant to go to Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of this. And the fulfillment of that is working itself out in each and every one of our blood-bought, spirit-indwelt lives.